Welcome back to Cannonballs, the podcast where we dive into the literary canon and break it down for you so you don't even have to get your own feet wet. I'm Gemma Kaneko, here as always with Ben Cosman. Hi, Hi Ben. Gemma. How's it going? What's, you know, it's good. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. You know, it's a little too hot for me, but it's okay. I mean, I was enjoying the... Uh, the rainy mid-60s weather this week. Okay, Heathcliff, enough of you. <laughs> we are joined this week by Daniel Sheehan, who is a classics lover, my roommate, and also a very smart person overall. Uh, welcome to Cannonballs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited because you actually have a very wide breadth of knowledge about of this specific time that we're going to talk about, which is uh, the beginning of the Western canon. The Odyssey. Yeah. The Odyssey can't talk about Homer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I, I feel like we talk about Greek myths a lot and you just know all of them and like all of the plot family twists and turns sort of. Yeah, I'm, I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of like a Greek myth nerd, mythology nerd in general, but also like narrowed down specifically into Greek myth. So this is like right in my wheelhouse. I love The Odyssey. I first read it when I was like eight. Oh, wow. So... Well, an abridged version, so it wasn't like a huge master text. How much yeah. sex is in the Odyssey for none. eight-year-olds? None. <laughs> okay. Absolutely none. No, was, no, it it's the, was it the Arthur episode about the Odyssey? I remember no. that really vividly. No, <laughs> no sex in that either. I'm a, I'm a little too old to to remember, like, I, to be watching Arthur when I was a kid. But uh, no, it was, we had a textbook that actually had an abridged version of the Odyssey in it that really just glossed over a lot of stuff. Um, it was like, oh, poor Odysseus. Oh, as he goes from place to place. Oh, aren't the women terrible? I didn't think anything of it until a few years later when my father was like, when I was your age, I was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. And uh, yeah, so then I actually read the whole, like the whole text. So yeah, that's, but that's, I, there's a lot of adaptations and we're going to talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit later in a lot of different ways that people interact with the story. But we specifically read Emily Wilson's new translation, and this is the first English language translation by a woman. Mm-hmm. So we will talk more about the significance of that later. Um, but for this episode, we're going to do this in two parts. We read the first half. So that's books one through 12, which actually ended up being a pretty great stopping point because as we'll see, that's sort of when the beginning action ends of, of the story of like getting caught up to where we're supposed to be contemporaneously in the story. Um, so you said you had read it, you read it as a child, you read it a couple years ago. This, so this is like the beginning of the Western canon. Um, it's like 3000 years old, just foundational. Um, and I think that so much of this piece of literature has, has infected our cultural, uh, lexicon, like even the word odyssey, right? Yes, That's because yeah. of this book. But when was the last time, Ben, that you read this book, the odyssey? Oh, I read it, uh, I think once or twice in college. So four or five, well, no, I guess six or seven years ago at this point. <laughs> um, a lot, a lot of humanities basics did, uh, this was the first one. I took an epic poetry class in college, which talked about the Odyssey. Um, and that, that was actually an interesting read because we compared this with the Aeneid uh, and the Fairy Queen and, uh, and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Uh, interesting. So, so yeah, I've, I've, I've experienced the Odyssey a few times in high school, a couple of times in college now this. Um, I love it. I think it's great. Really funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I never read it in any educational setting, um, outside of high school. So I read it in ninth grade high school. I don't remember reading the full text for whatever reason. I feel like we also read an abridged version and I didn't read the full text until I had graduated from college and I read it on my own because I just like, for some reason became aware of the fact I must've been talking to someone that, that we had never read the full version. Um, so I had, I read it for the first time completely, probably like five or six years ago as well. Well, I think, um, it, I think it's interesting that 
like the abridged version, I think most people, I mean, as the Odyssey is conceptualized in popular culture now is just like the three chapters where Odysseus is telling a story, but that's such a small part of this book. Like that's sort of why I like it where most of the plot happens in three chapters and then the main character just saying what happened to get him to the point where he is in the actual story. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about that a little bit later too, but let's do a quick scouting report though. I'm sure that you all know what the Odyssey is. Uh, I still like to, to jump in to kind of quickly go through what we thought of this book coming in, any preconceptions we might've had now uh, because we are all baseball fans. We do this on a 20 to 80 scouting scale. That's just what we do. It's just the truth. Um, 20 obviously being the lowest and 80 being the highest. We rate this out of five categories. Um, First category is classicness, which our score averaged out to 2,720 because Ben <laughs> gave this a score of 8,000. It is the most classic. I mean, I guess if you were a baseball player, you that would mean that you your arms were made of adamantium. Yeah. I, like, I don't even... I, there's there's no... two bazookas for you arms. You played all the positions. Yeah, that was you it. played yeah. all the positions at a Hall of Fame caliber. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is that is the classicness for the Odyssey. I, right. Danielle and I both gave it 80s because yeah. we were not as aggressive as you <laughs> right. with our, our score. But yeah, I mean... We agreed with your sentiment. Yeah. Moby really. Dick is an 80. The Odyssey is an 8,000. <laughs> I mean, all right, yeah, classicness, it, it's its beyond dispute. So our next category is accessibility, which overall we averaged out to a 45. Some of us went higher or lower. Um, I don't, I, I remember when I first read it, I was actually surprised at how easy it was to mm-hmm. read, but rereading it, um, but, but I still think that just the fact that it is so repetitive can be uh, kind of distracting. Yeah. Yeah, so I went a little bit lower. What did you guys yeah. think? No, I, I pretty much said like around that 45, um, my, I, I really enjoyed it, of course, when I first read it, because I read like a really small, like portion of it when, when you really think about it, but I can imagine being like in high school or something like that. And you get the, you know, um, like Fitzgerald or Fagel's translation. And you're just like, what on earth is this? And I can just (laughs) see so many of my classmates, if we were to have read it, just go, Oh, nope. Not not even going to bother with this. Get, you know, through the first book and go, what on earth is going on? Because the book doesn't open the way that you would expect. Right. And so, yeah, I can see that being kind of like a turnoff to a lot of people. Because really what people think of when they think the Odyssey, like the main action doesn't start. They're like, get to the sexy nymphs already. Right. Um, Speaking of sexy nymphs, pop (laughs) culture influence is our next category, which we all roundly gave it an 80. Um, We'll talk about this later, but uh, because of a certain adaptation, I always imagine Cersei as Bernadette Peters and (laughs) Calypso as Vanessa Williams. Um, But this is, to me, this has penetrated our lives in such a deep way that all fiction is indebted to it in some way or another. So. Yeah, it's in, yeah. Like, it has its own lexicon. There are words that are from this book. Yeah, it's 80. By far. Um, humor, we went with 65, which is pretty decently funny, I think. I, I had remembered this, like, I remembered finding a lot of it funny when I read it for the first time as an adult. Um, I told Danielle this joke earlier, but I will tell it to you now. My ninth grade English teacher, when we were discussing this the first time when we read it, he was like, this is the story of Odysseus's comings and goings, mostly comings. <laughs> yes, that's good. <laughs> Get- <laughs> good. And, and when you're 14, you're like, ah! <laughs> Yeah, no, this, I think it's pretty funny. I, I do wonder how much it is intentionally funny. Um, yeah. But it's, I mean, Odysseus is a 
boneheaded sitcom dad a lot of times. So I think it's funny. No, no, I think definitely, I think it's, it's humorous, particularly like looking back on like from our perspective now, but I do, I agree, Ben. I, I'm not sure how much is intended to be funny. Um, and the, the Greeks so had that, a dark that is humor. a very interesting question. Yeah, I mean, sure. I think that there are jokes and they're meant for the mm-hmm. listeners, but the thing that I'm laughing at is probably not the same right. thing that they're laughing exactly. at. Like, am I, do I think it's funny that Odysseus sat on a rock and cried for seven years straight? Like, I do think that's kind of funny. <laughs> do you think he really sat on a rock and cried for seven years straight? No. no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, our last category is relevance, which we all gave a 70. Um, we didn't go full. I'm interested, Ben, because you said this is you doesn't get more classic than this. So why doesn't get more relevant than this? Why only a seventy? Oh, yeah, I struggled this when I was rating it, um, and I was actually originally going to rate it lower because relevance. I think, I mean, I think it's almost so classic where it's not necessarily um, timely. If that, if I can make that distinction, where it's, I mean, it's mm-hmm. ultimately a story of coming home. And like, I feel like that has been done so many times where there's not necessarily a nugget that is particularly apt for our time now. Um, I mean, it is timeless. I don't know if it's timely, um, but I was re- in um, this translation. Emily Wilson has a long introduction that is really good. I'm working my way through it as we work through the book. And she makes, there's a section where she talks about uh, uh, hosting and like being a good host and welcoming foreigners and strangers. And I think that part is particularly relevant nowadays. Um, and particularly mm-hmm. in the United States for various reasons. Um, I, I, I thought that was interesting. I thought the, the way the Greeks valued hosting and, um, and being kind to strangers and what happens when you're not kind to strangers and how you're punished when you are not a good host uh, was particularly relevant. Stick in the eye. Yeah. When in doubt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely uh, agree with you there. All right, so we've scouted it. That's what the what the Odyssey is to us. And now it's time to get you caught up on what happens in it. Um, I'm going to do a character wrap up like we usually do. Try to keep. I usually try to keep these quick. Um, I realized while I was writing this that there's a very specific thing that Homer does um, that I think anyone who's ever, ever encountered the Odyssey is familiar with, even if you don't aren't aware of the term. But he does Homeric epithets, where a person is described or a character is described. Um, very succinctly and it's or an, a thing i think probably the most famous two are wine dark sea and rosy fingered dawn and those terms are repeated all over and over but there's wily odysseus there's brave odysseus there's steadfast penelope there's always something like that and i realized that when we write these character wrap-ups for every book we do that's kind of what mm-hmm. we do that's um, that pop culture influence we're the pop culture yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah there forever so i'm gonna go through this uh list uh there are a lot of other characters that i'm leaving off of this but these are the ones that are important enough in the first 12 books to warrant a mention uh so here we go odysseus is the wily hero penelope is his faithful wife telemachus is his worried son athena is the goddess of wit and wisdom uh poseidon is a massive tool and the god of the sea hermes is the quick-footed trickster messenger god zeus is zeus i think you know that uh, Calypso is a sexy sea nymph. Nausicaa is a princess that does laundry. Alcinius and Arete are her parents. Polyphemus is a rude host and a cyclops. Aeolus guards the winds. Circe is a witch goddess. Tiresias is a blind prophet. Helios is the sun god. The sirens offer knowledge, but also death. Charybdis is a whirlpool. And Scylla is a ravenous sea hydra. Very good. So, you know, hope you wrote all that down. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's it. That's all you need to know. Uh, now we're going to do the plot of the first 12 books and weave those all together. Now, if you if you want to, if you all want to chime in at any point, go ahead. I wrote a lot of things out. I will probably not read all of it because it's, you know, a lot of a lot of things. But this this it begins with the gods dicking around and Athena mentions to Zeus that Odysseus is still trapped on Calypso's island and she's sad about it. Um, then we smash cut back to Ithaca where Penelope's crying a lot. Telemachus is upset because all of these men are trying to marry his mom and eating all of his food. And so then Athena shows up and is like, get your shit together, Telemachus. You need to find out what happened to your dad. Even though she knows she could tell him. Yeah. <laughs> but she's like, no, you have to go sail around and try to figure it out yourself. Um, so then we cut back to the gods. We see that, that Hermes gets to go get Odysseus off of Calypso's island where he's been banging the scene of for like seven years. Um, so he does, but there was also a compromise where he's like, okay, I'm going to get you off the island, but you have to take this leaky ass raft that is going to break apart on the 19th day of sailing. And then you just get to swim to, uh, this land fascia and, uh, Athena inspires the princess Nausicaa to go do her laundry at the place that Odysseus has washed up essentially. So she finds him, gives him a bath. Is like, this dude's pretty hot. Um, they go to see her parents while he goes by himself and then, they, ha- they, ha- they welcome him because he's a stranger. So they feed him and they clothe him. Um, and then there's a blind poet there, interesting, uh, who starts singing a song about Odysseus's own Trojan War exploits. So Odysseus just starts crying and like weeping, but no one <laughs> notices but the king. So he's like, let's all chill out and play some games instead. And then all of the young princes make fun of Odysseus for not wanting to play the games. But then he throws a discus into the wall and everyone respects him. And then they ask him what his deal is. So he starts to tell the story that we all consider to basically be the Odyssey. So at the end of the Trojan War, he and his men get blown off course. Um, They meet the Lotus Eaters who seduce some people away forever. They end up on the island of the Cyclops where they're trapped in this cave with the Cyclops because the Cyclops was a rude host. And Odysseus stabs him in the eye and they sneak out under the bellies of all of his rams. Um, They meet some different cannibals. A bunch of people die. Um, They go to the island of the winds. And then Odysseus's men think that the bag that he gets is full of treasure, but in fact, it's full of wind. So they open it and they get blown off course again. Uh, They end up on Circe's island. She turns them all into pigs, except for Odysseus. He fixes them and then stays there for a year, having sex with her. Uh, Eventually, she tells him that he has to go to the land of the dead, Hades, to talk to the blind prophet, Tiresias. And then Tiresias will tell him how to get home. Unclear why this extra step, the gods put it there, but they did. So then he goes there and hangs out with a bunch of famous dead people. Like that's really most of that part is he's just waiting for all the famous dead people to come talk to him. Um, He finds out that he can either sail past the sun god Helios's island and just don't mess with the cows. Like whatever you do, don't mess with the cows on the island and he'll get home eventually and it'll all be pretty cool. But if they do mess with the cows, the other option is that every single other person but Odysseus will die and it's going to take him much longer to get home. So what do you think happens? They mess with the cows, everybody dies, he ends up on Calypso's island and then uh, that kind of brings us back to where we started. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's, that's a it. That's all. <laughs> A lot of stuff happens in those first 12 chapters. Um, so so let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about some plot. Let's talk about the gods and let's talk about fate because the gods are constantly there telling someone's anger at someone else. Um, the reason that Odysseus gets dicked around so much is because of what happens with the Cyclops. So in this very famous episode from the Odyssey, he 
they're on this island, the Cyclops, they're waiting around in this cave for him to come and offer them gifts like you're supposed to do for guests. Instead, he eats two of his men and they get trapped in this cave and they have to kind of trick their way out. And Odysseus gets Cyclops drunk and uh, it stabs him in the eye and, and he's like, who are you? And he gives his name as No Man. So then everyone's like, Polyphemus, are you okay? And he says, No Man is hurting me. And so that's the trick, right? Um but then that's Poseidon's son. The Cyclops turns out to be Poseidon's son. So Poseidon is like, screw you, Odysseus. I'm going to make this all really hard for you. And then other gods who are also are all powerful are kind of trying to help him out. So like, how, how, does, how does fate matter here? Like, do any of Odysseus's choices matter? That, so this is something I think about a lot while reading mm-hmm. this. Because it seems like Odysseus chalks up all his actions to the gods. Whereas mm-hmm. if he succeeds, it's because Zeus allowed it, really. Um, I almost wonder how much of it is just uh, like a figure of expression, like almost the way we use God willing now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I really like the Greeks' uh, conception of gods because they're not necessary. I mean, you describe them as all powerful. I don't know if I would agree that they're all powerful because they seem to be in competition with each other a lot and like they can one up each other i would say they're all uh manipulative um but i think the the gods they're deathless which is how homer describes them quite a bit um but they're also fallible which i think is really interesting in that um they're really just most of this action just takes place because the gods are either angry or horny like that is (laughs) most of what the most of the odyssey's action is either you know a goddess like calypso or Circe um, wanting to take Odysseus as a husband, uh, or Poseidon being very angry. Um, I don't know. I, I yeah, fate. I don't. Well, so fate is interesting because I think it's Menelaus who is is Menelaus the prophet, not the blind prophet no, in no, Hades, no. but he's a prophet. No, no, no. Menelaus is yeah, he's uh, Helen's husband. husband. But yeah. so when tell. Uh, Telemachus is talking to somebody. I can't remember who he's actually talking about, but he's talking to one of Odysseus' friends in Troy who has the gift of prophecy. And Odysseus' friend was basically like, yeah, I told Odysseus that this was all going to happen to him. And he still left. Like, it's, it's happening to him now. Like, I, this was foretold. So Odysseus seemed to have been fated this from the very beginning, even before he attacked um, Poseidon's son. I mean, there is a lot, the, the word fate, they, they, there are fates too. Like yeah. that is their actual goddesses that are fates that, that make things happen. Um, but Odysseus does make some choices, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. Right. When he, um, when he decides to brag about, uh, being the one to attack Poseidon's ex- son exactly. and then exactly. gives himself away. Yeah. His, it's basically his hubris though. <laughs> yeah. He has to brag about, you know, being you know the smartest man that ever lived and of course it comes back to bite him in the ass <laughs> uh as you know unfortunately well i was gonna say unfortunately happens but yeah it's not really that unfortunate <laughs> you make those choices man you, you you have to die by them and when that happens polyphemus he hears odysseus mm-hmm. he, he hears oh he then he says something like oh i knew that you were gonna come here and stab me in my eye <laughs> right i was told you were going to so there was no, there was already no life in which that didn't happen. So are we, so what is, is this a moral story? Like, are we, are we being told a moral story here? Or are we being told like an adventure story? I feel like it's, it's a moral tale wrapped around an adventure story. 
Okay. Um, I also think like, it's also a tale of, I know it's, it's been said before in like interviews and stuff like that, but I've heard like heard of this. I'm like, yes, it's so true. It really is like a tale of relationships as well. It's very much a character driven kind of story. It's not just, and then this part happened and then this part happened and then Odysseus went here and there and everywhere and (laughs) made it back home. Um, You know, it really is very much a, you know, people have, people make bad decisions or, and uh, they kind of suffer for them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would describe it as an adventure story because the main action that is conceptualized as the Odyssey only really takes place in a few books, whereas mostly it's a very, not mundane story, but the drama the drama is small and then it's just one man trying to get home right um which that's why i like it it's not like the iliad which is a war story whereas this is more just a very almost domestic story Mm -hmm. particularly when you get to um penelope and telemachus uh in ithaca so let's talk about that for a minute so this book the odyssey does not begin where i think probably if you've never encountered it you would imagine it to begin which is the war ends like the trojan war ends and now odysseus has to go home it starts many many years after that with athena talking to zeus on top of mount olympus like oh it's been so long since odysseus been been home and he's just like with calypso and it's really irritating and then we see that ithaca has been bereft of him for so long and it kind of starts in the in almost like in the middle of the action Mm -hmm. in the middle of Um, things in media race yeah Yeah. (laughs) so so in that case like what is that structure of doing for you uh i mean i think it i think again it it serves to emphasize what the drama of the story actually is. It's not Odysseus's exploits with the Cyclops or going to Hades. That is just what needed to happen to get him here. It's him coming home. It's what happened, what's happening to his family through his absence. Uh, you know, his son, I, one of my favorite parts um, in the beginning is when Telemachus is talking to Athena and he says he's allegedly Odysseus' son. Because he has no, he, you know, Odysseus left for the Trojan War when he was an infant, so he has no memory of his father. He doesn't even know if he's actually his father's son. Um, and if you read, you know, if you read the Odyssey starting in the beginning with no conception of it, you almost think it's a coming-of-age story with Telemachus. Like, it's his journey to, um, you know, take control of his household, uh, prepare for his father's return, and sort of stand up to the suitors who are trying to marry his mother. Mm-hmm. No, I do think like, yeah, it definitely emphasizes Odysseus's, um, how his choices have affected the people that, um, he like that care about him or love him or whatever, like you, that are close to him. Um, so yeah, I do, I do appreciate that it starts really looking at, you know, examining like Telemachus and Penelope and how they're the ones that are suffering for his, abandonment so to speak mm-hmm. yeah. and odysseus doesn't start the b- story in danger when we meet odysseus he's already sort of through the danger the closest he ever comes to death is i mean he's literally close to death when, when he goes to hades i guess um but also on the cyclops island but you know the worst part about uh, where odysseus situation in the start of the odyssey is when athena she keeps describing him as, as friendless on calypso's island um and that seems to be the worst fate that has befalled or befell him so far um, is that he's friendless and alone and away from home for 20, 20 years. I really am. I really find it interesting the way that you're both talking about this as a domestic story in, in, yeah. in essence is that 
we do see the results of Odysseus's choices. Like he, if if his tragic flaw is to brag about how great he is and continue to get kicked off course in all of these various ways that like it does kind it is kind of sad for him like he is sad and we are told that he's crying <laughs> a lot all the time um but the 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 times where we get cut back to Ithaca and Telemachus and Penelope and we really see like the actual cost of his actions like he's going to be okay we know that Odysseus is going to be okay because Athena is there to help him out and she's not going to let him die in a stupid way like maybe a cool way but not a stupid <laughs> way um so to see that the to see the impact of his choices reflected on his family is a very interesting way to conceptualize this mm-hmm. story and I, I would I say think. most I mean I was surprised at how uh, brief the descriptions of the Odyssey, like Odysseus's journey, are. Like he, you really burn through his time on Circe's Island. You burn through the time with the Cyclops, whereas you get whole, you know, whole books, multiple books dedicated to setting up feasts uh, on Phaeacia, for example, or Tonicus going to talk to King Nestor. Like m- most of the story and most of the actual text. And the lines of the poem are dedicated to uh, domestic situations. It is interesting mm-hmm. to say because I I had I was talking about this a little bit earlier, but l- the lotus eaters, which is a pretty powerful image now for anyone to use in any situation where they want to make some kind of comparison about closing one's eyes to the truth of the world, um, is right, two like sentences. It's, yeah, it's, Maybe yeah, it's really glossed over two to the point lines. Where yeah, is it even necessary to the story? Like the yeah. poignancy of that image. I, presumably, there are a lot of texts that we don't exist that are, we don't know, but that myths that are satisfying for would have been satisfying for a listener to hear to be like, oh yes, that thing that I know about already from a completely different poem. You know, that's like I I understand it. It's a touchstone for me. Um, but, but you are right that this is not ultimately, like, there are a lot of moments in this poem that recount things that have already happened. Um, the story of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra is told Mm -hmm. multiple times from multiple different points of view in the, in the story. Um, even though this is not a story about that, but I guess that is in itself also a domestic story. Um, and we can talk about that right now. Um, let's talk about the role of women in the Odyssey. I want to talk about this not only because the translator is a woman, but because, like we have been discussing, this is actually about family and relationships in a lot of ways. And um, Odysseus is also gallivants around the sea, just hanging out and hooking up all for 20 years. <laughs> but his wife's faithfulness is her most important virtue in, in the story. So what she's is the good wife? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's, that's how she's framed. She is, she is the good, faithful, like moral wife that every that every wife should, uh, idol, like idolize. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I think her opposite is set up multiple times mm-hmm. as Clytemnestra, uh, Helen to a lesser extent, but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, there, yeah, there's like the three wives that, that are in the story, which is like, really interesting. Helen and Clytemnestra, and Clytemnestra are, are actually half sisters mm-hmm. in, uh, in mythology. So I thought it was, I think it's very interesting, you know, Agamemnon and Menelaus were brothers and they married, um, how like Agamemnon marries Helen, Menelaus, I mean, Menelaus marries Helen, Agamemnon marries Clytemnestra. And then of course, like, 
Helen is abducted or runs off with Paris, different (laughs) interpretations of that, uh, what you will. Um, But she, of course, is not faithful to Menelaus. And that is something that is constantly like remembered. And despite her being in in the Spartan court and she is, you know, like the role of the dutiful wife kind of right now, I'm, I'm using quotation marks to say dutiful wife. Um, that is of course, never forgotten that she was, she had been unfaithful to her husband. And then Clytemnestra of course suffers even more so. Right. Yeah. Do you want to catch us up on the, I mean, it's in the, it's in the Odyssey, but catch us up on the story of Clytemnestra and uh because I think she's one end Clytemnestra Helen's in the middle and then Penelope's on the other end yeah okay so Clytemnestra um Clytemnestra is given to Agamemnon um from Sparta when Agamemnon loses the lottery for Helen's hand um as I said before Menelaus and Helen were married so Agamemnon and Clytemnestra are married they have a child Iphigenia um the story is that uh, Agamemnon uh, offends Artemis before the Helen of Troy, Helen of uh, Helen of Troy incident, and uh, to be put back into good graces of the goddess, he has to sacrifice Iphigenia, and Clytemnestra, of course, is. I mean, I would think like you sacrifice my daughter, I'm never going to forgive you. So. I think that's a major undercurrent, of course. So when Agamemnon goes to fight in Troy, uh, Clytemnestra, of course, um, is unfaithful. And when Agamemnon returns, her lover and she kill Agamemnon and Cassandra, actually, which was Priam's daughter, which is a whole nother thing that go into. Um, But then ultimately, the two of them are killed by her son, Orestes. And that's its own tragedy. He gets pursued by the Furies. Basically, everyone's super touchy and no one is going to have a good life. People just are unfaithful to one another constantly and die because of it. And the house of Atreus is cursed anyway. Yeah. But so those are our three women, like the three three pillar wives. Uh, And then there are the various goddesses and nymphs that float around here. Um, So what do you guys think is the difference between a goddess and a human woman? in the narration the goddess the female goddesses seem to have an agency that the human women don't um mm-hmm. like Cal- Cal- the first one we really meet is calypso well athena athena is you know almost the puppet master behind the whole story so she has an you know agency all to herself but then calypso one of my favorite things is that calypso she basically says that when hermes comes calypso says that the male gods are just pissed that she's taken a human as a lover and not one of them um which I thought was funny is that, you know, the fe- you know, Calypso as a female goddess or nymph, um, like, are they, what are they, like, demi-goddesses? Like, not quite the level of, uh, right, they're, they're not, they're not, not quite yeah. an Olympian yeah. god, I guess. Um, yeah, Calypso is, uh, like, the yeah. child of a time. Um, but yeah, yeah, she basically, yeah. She, she just, she reveals the male goddesses, as, or male gods just petty and jealous. Um, and then Circe, Circe actually, um, I thought it was really interesting in when reading it in this translation where she comes off um, as very, um, 
like prescient almost where she tells there's one uh one point where she's talking to Odysseus and she says no you fool your mind is still obsessed with deeds of war but now you must surrender to the gods when he wants to I believe when he's trying to decide whether or not he should try to fight um Scylla the Hydra monster um and she's telling him no like you have to put put away your you know war obsessed masculinity and just do as I say um so yeah, the, the goddesses have more of an agency, and they take lovers. They take Odysseus as a lover. I'm assuming they take others. I don't know, though. Uh, we only see Odysseus, uh, whereas Penelope <laughs> is forced to be faithful. Yeah, she can't even kick all these right. people she, out of the yeah, damn house. At, at their uh, mercy. I, I think I think yeah, Helen is really interesting, does. what we see of her, because she seems super depressed and just self-medicating with like, yeah. very powerful <laughs> alcohol. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, she does. Yeah, just and makes then she a lot offers of drugs. She's like, "Hey, you won't remember anything if you drink this." <laughs> She's just doing yeah. it. It's just antidepressants. Right. The drug yeah. makes yeah. you not cry. It's like even if you saw your own brother murdered in front of you, you would not shed tears. And you're like, "Yeah, you." Yeah. All right, Helen. You may be saying that you wanted to go home, but uh, <laughs> something's yeah. up. So it, yeah. But even, but I was gonna say, like, even though, like, she didn't really have like much of a choice after the sack of Troy. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's she going to do? I mean, there's, there's multiple interpretations, of course, like what, how it all went down, but Menelaus like went to kill her and then could not for whatever reason. Um, and then decides like, in one interpretation, like one um, translation, um, some, he decides he's going to punish her in back at Sparta. And then another's like, Oh, her beauty. He couldn't kill her. Um, so yeah, I mean, she, she can't even die. You know, she's just punished to still live. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's dark. That's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. If Menelaus had killed her, Zeus would, because she's uh, Zeus's kid. Yeah. Zeus probably would have fucked him up. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Zeus probably, well, I was going to say, Zeus probably would have yeah. fucked her. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, there is a lot of that, incest. Yeah, there's that one family him. that I think Odysseus meets where the guy has six daughters and six brothers and then pairs them up for marriage. <laughs> Uh, right yeah six yeah. yeah six sons and six daughters and that's the, oh, the yeah, guardian yeah, yeah. of the winds yeah that, that i thought was rich because when they get <laughs> blown back when his his greedy men think that it's treasure in the bag and not winds and they open it while he's sleeping and then they get blown back to the island of the winds um aeolus is like how dare you come back here you've obviously been cursed by the gods this is disgusting get off my island like get yeah. off your incest <laughs> paradise island <laughs> You don't think you're disgusting? Uh, I'm so but mad. I do. Something I was interested in, and I picked up on this translation, um, is that yeah, women are sort of particularly Helen. You know, is talked about for her beauty, but then there's also this value placed on women for their intelligence. Like Athena, the goddess of wisdom, it plays an important role. Uh, the suitors talk about Penelope as being particularly intelligent and particularly knowledgeable. Um, and Circe and Calypso have a knowledge that is, you know, even beyond Odysseus sometimes. Um, so, I, and the sirens particularly, and there's this, you know, we can talk about the translation in a little bit, but Emily Wilson, I was reading, she had this, she went on this um, discussion of the sirens and how in previous translations, you know, our conception of the sirens is that they're these irresistible, hyper-sexy creatures and that's why, you know, they have the siren song, but it's also, it's a sexy song and they're seducing men to come to them. But she was making the point that, you know, a more faithful translation of the Greek says nothing about their looks necessarily, but it's the fact that they have knowledge and that they say, uh, you know, they, we know whatever happens anywhere on earth. 
And so they're seducing sailors and men with their knowledge of the world. And that is what makes them irresistible. Which I think Mm -hmm. is a much more powerful metaphor than men are seduced by seduction, essentially, by sexiness. And in fact, like if sailors are going to their death, it's because they want to know more about the world. Like this is the metaphor, right? Is that by exploring, you are also courting Mm -hmm. your possible death. By sailing outside of the Peloponnesian or the Aegean or et cetera, there's always something there that could hurt you. Um, which is far more interesting to me anyway than like, yeah. wow, look at this you know, um, uh, Odysseus has just left Circe's Island. He's headed to Calypso. You know, there are plenty of, you know, godlike babes in this book. You don't need sirens as well. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that the value of such strong values place on women's intelligence. I don't disagree. Penelope is noted for being quite bright. And Circe, one of her epithets is that she speaks mm-hmm. all the mortal languages. Also, also, she's the well-groomed goddess, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but so that that's all. And like... Ares is a god of war, and so is Athena, but Ares is really <laughs> dumb. Like, we all know that Ares is just, like, He's this brash bro. asshole. Um, <laughs> it's funny to think of him as a frat bro. But we go to the land of the dead with Odysseus, and he's just talking to his dead friends and also some, like, dead epic heroes. But he talks to a bunch of tragically dead his women mother. first. Like, yeah. And then other heroines of, of Greek myth that he speaks to. And then he talks to Agamemnon, and Agamemnon tells a story of his own murder and how upsetting it was because he was <laughs> murdered, you know, it was pretty upsetting. But he says, never trust women. He specifically says Clytemnestra's actions have put a stain on all women. He's like, even Penelope, you can't tell her everything. You have to, you have to measure it all out because women are untrustworthy. But narratively, I don't see any of these ladies playing tricks. I only see Odysseus right. playing tricks. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's certainly a double standard there. Well, no, I'm wondering, <laughs> I, I, like, I don't think that, I think that is not, I don't think that the point we're supposed to take from this poem mm-hmm. is don't trust women. I think we're supposed to think about it in a different, I think it's supposed to make you think critically about that, because Agamemnon did not get an illustrious death. Right. In in a lot of in one of the play versions, um, he gets murdered in the bathtub. Like it's not it's not it's not a glamorous or heroic death. And he also mentions like he brought home Priam's daughter as like a slave. This is perhaps to us like way more appalling. But I think there there are indications that his character is not very good. No. Um, and we see that because of all the tricks that Odysseus plays, he sometimes gets himself into deeper waters than he perhaps intended to. So, so that, that is interesting to me. Like, I don't think that, that I think that you are reading it correctly and that women in this poem are more mm-hmm. intelligent. And I mean, Odysseus succeeds for a little bit when he listens to Circe and, you know, everybody succeeds when they listen to Athena. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it is. There is a lesson here that, you know, listen to the intelligent women in your life and you will, you'll get home a little sooner, maybe. Um, although I do think it, there was one part that I thought was interesting is when Athena, in the very beginning, when she's talking to Telemachus, um, and it reminded me when you were saying Agamemnon is telling Odysseus um, not to tell Penelope all that happened on his journey home, whereas Teleme- or Athena even leaves out the fact that Odysseus has for like seven years just been sleeping with Calypso. <laughs> Where, but right. she she tells Telemachus, Athena tells Telemachus that his father has been quote captured by fear, but really he's just cheating on his mom. <laughs> like so, I, I, I do think it's interesting that even 
the uh, you know all powerful, all intelligent female character in this book is you know lying to protect Odysseus a little bit. I mean, they also do refer to him as being trapped on Calypso's island. Like she won't let yeah, him leave. But then he, so he, I want to briefly, I want to briefly discuss this, uh, this but, uh, relationship that to sex and coercion that's in the book. Like when he goes to Cersei's island, Hermes tells him she's going to want to sleep with you, but you have to make her promise not to yes. cut off your dick. <laughs> but I, what I'm curious about here is who in this book is having sex because they want to have sex with someone like. Even this this goddess is coercing Odysseus into it in a sense, and there's a lot of slave women which will come up later. Um, but Cassandra being brought home by Agamemnon is not because they're friends, you know. So, I, is there a relationship in this book in this in this poem that is not related to coercion? Or if there is, like, what does the coercion say about the relationships that we find to be so sensitive? So I to the don't. Poem? I I don't know if I find. I would say a the one relationship that I think isn't coercive, although we never we don't really get a backstory, is Odysseus and Penelope. Like we don't necessarily know how they do. We know how they met or got married. Um, I don't know. Well, at, at, in uh, myth, it's when in Sparta, because um, Penelope was actually um, Helen's cousin. Hmm. Everyone's Helen related in these in- books. I know they're all related. Uh, I think was it the her the kingdom she was from, Acarius? Maybe I don't know. That sounds um, right. It's probably close to that. Uh, but um, when because Ode- Odysseus was actually one of Helen's suitors as well originally. So um, when everybody congregated to Sparta to to court Helen, <laughs> what Odysseus actually came up with was a plan saying okay, um, I like I have this idea, guys. Let's all draw lots to who gets Helen as a wife. And then we will all make a pact of whoever wins, we will support. Oh, I remember. Like, they mentioned the drawing forward. of lots yes. in the Odyssey. Yeah. So Odysseus poses this um, idea and... Uh, for his reward, he's actually helped um, in his suit. Of Penelope. Uh, okay. Well, so maybe there's yeah. some coercion there. But I also, I don't yeah. know if Odysseus and Calypso's relationship is coercive. I think Odysseus enjoys his time on Calypso's island, and in fact, it's only when he w- wants to leave I, at the start of book five when he basically says cl- tells Calypso that he no longer wants her, and that he's you know he's tired he, of sleeping with her for seven years, and now that's why he wants to leave. Right. No, no, I agree. Yeah. It's specifically written that he does not like she displeases him at like um, like after after right, seven yeah. years, she finally displeases him. Um, but what I was going to actually ask this at this point in time, does Odysseus really want to go home? Like, <laughs> I can't help but wonder, you know, like he has it seems like by this point in time, he has like survivor's guilt, PTSD, probably. Does he actually want to go home? And that's an interesting reading is that he yeah. keeps intentionally fucking up because he doesn't actually <laughs> want to sabotage. He does frequently I mean he does say a lot like I wish I had just died yeah. at Troy. Like right. I wish I died on the field of battle mm-hmm. in my noble friend's arms and then it gets all, you know, Greek and super sexual about death. But that that is interesting. That is a fascinating reading. And I I I wonder 
how the second half of the book will clarify that yeah. idea. When no, when I'm definitely intrigued to continue on that. I do think he is yeah. seeking a hero's death. Like I think that's why he doesn't want to stay mm-hmm. on Clips's Island because she she <laughs> won't she won't let him die. That is almost yeah. worse than that anything to him. It, it's not even that he will just continue to live. He's just not going to be doing right. anything either. I think it's really <laughs> worth keeping in mind this idea that he wants to die a hero's death um, because he does hear from Tiresias mm-hmm. that he's going to grow old. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe he doesn't want to. But um, let's think about that for next week. But I just want to touch on translation briefly before we move on to the <laughs> die of death. Uh, so we, I did want to talk about how Emily Wilson is the first woman to translate this book into English. Um, why is it significant that it's her and not like the millionth, a thousand year old tweed wearing man? I mean, you, you miss out on the sexist, misogynistic translation right. language here. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, she, she talks about the description of the sirens that is really inaccurate in previous translations. Um, I think there's this one clip of, I think you sent me this Gemma when we were first talking about this book is that there's also um, in previous translations, a lot of female slaves are referred to as sluts, whereas no, they're just female slaves or maids Um, or maids. Like the, even the concept of slavery is glossed over in a lot of previous translations. Um, So I I think that particular um, particularly is notable about this translation. I think her translator's note is really illuminating and I encourage everyone who reads this edition to read it um, because she, she notes that there's no translation that is not formed by the translator's life experiences and biases. Um, I, I did appreciate that she was paying explicit attention to the concept of colonialism in the world that we live in today. So while that didn't necessarily, I mean, obviously did not exist 3000 years ago in the sense that it, it does now, like the ramifications of it, it was still a slaveholding society that believed itself to be at the highest peak of intellectual and achie- achievement that still believed in slavery. So she she does bring that up. But um, one thing that I think is really valuable here and valuable just to the conversation and literature as a whole is that she notes that previous translators did not at any point have to question their own prejudices because they are the ones that the wider culture shares to to be a woman in the world is to be acutely aware of white male supremacy and to notice how it differs from your own experience. And I think that she picks that out really well in her note and also Mm -hmm. in the way that she frames these actions, which maybe is one of the reasons that we're getting a stronger reading of women with agency, even if they are deathless, immortal women. Danielle, do you have any thoughts? No, I think that's an excellent point. One of the things I thought was really interesting is I I saw an interview with her that she didn't even really know at the time that she was was the first woman to be translating this into English. She was kind of she was actually really surprised by that. Interesting. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's that's kind of crazy that she never like even like knew that. And then, of course, like the topic of the interview, like it um, went down the, the road of, well, why? Why do you think that would be? And it's you know, of course, the question of women, far, far less women academics have like are given tenure um, and being able to do like tra- like a translation is not exactly how one gets tenure anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was just like, wow, you know, like so many women don't even get the opportunity to be able to like work on this kind of scale and that she, you know, she did that. Um, I think it was it's of course, very interesting that, you know, one of the things on that interview as well, she also made up what the point that you made is that um, 
you know, talking specifically, she mentions um, Fagel's uh, previous translation. He never had to consider being a white male um, as he was translating and how that, how his choices of translation um, affect the ultimate interpretation of the text, where she is constantly reminded on a daily basis that she is a woman. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that that's given her a lot more ability to just try to be like far more aware of of a more direct translation. That's also something that she really kind of focused on as well as being a direct translation line by line. Um, Cause it's the exact same length as the original. Oh, that's which is interesting. Really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I definitely kind of agree with your point. I, I, the first, so the first time I, when I first heard about this translation coming out was a New York times magazine profile of Wilson. And it's the, the profile almost exclusively focuses on her translation of the very first line of the, of the story where it's, mm-hmm. uh, I, b- I believe it's Muse. Tell me a story of, uh, a, a complicated well, in, in the translation. She settles for a complicated man, but she goes and she, she talks about how, you know, the way you translate that word and you can translate it a hundred different ways that sets the story that sets the tone for the entire story. And she talked about how she could, you know, with some, um, you know, with some solid reasoning translate it as tell me the story of an unfaithful man. Where then it just be, yeah. the Odyssey just becomes the story of a man who cheats on his wife for twenty years, um, <laughs> and how that, that could be a valid translation and a valid interpretation of the story. So I think I, that was fascinating. And that's you know I sort of you know the, the profile did its job because I decided I was going to buy and read the, the translation from that profile because it's fascinating how she has been very open from the beginning and has not pretended to have provided an objective translation. Where I think that's how a lot of translations were previously put mm-hmm. as objective and the best um, where she, you know, she's are very upfront that all translations are subjective. Um, and you know, like you said, depending on the, the translator's history and context. Uh, but it is also just the, like, I love this translation. It's incredible to read. The other ones are, you know, are stodgy and kind of boring. Yeah. But this is great. Yeah. She makes a point. This is my last thing I'll say before we move on, but she makes a point in her translator's notes to say that she didn't want to do any fake old ancient language Mm -hmm. uh she's like there's no reason that odysseus should speak your grandfather's english because the language he spoke was so different from your grandfather's english and our english that it doesn't matter and the equivalent to me is when people make fantasy films or period films it doesn't matter where they're set everybody's british like she didn't try to do that cast not it's everybody's not british they say chock full um they say at one point she's like and then they had sex (laughs) yeah just explicit you understand it and it's still very lyrical and direct um yeah yeah my favorite line is when Odysseus says, hey, you Cyclops idiot. <laughs> In our next uh, episode, I want to talk more about language specifically, and I think we'll mm-hmm. have the entire poem to drop them, but we'll talk about more epithets. We'll talk about um, the lyricism. We'll talk about iambic pentameter. Um, but right now, I want to play The Die of Death. Thankfully, we do not have to go to Hades and pour you blood out for anyone to drink uh, to get to the time of death. <laughs> but, but we could. We, right, right, exactly, but we have to yeah. keep all the famous ghosts away. We have to wait for <laughs> Teresius. He gets to drink the blood first. Um, 
So what happens in this game is I will roll a six-sided die and we will each play one of six games. Uh, the games we are playing tonight, you know what? I was going to say three-word description, but I'm just actually, I don't want to play this game. So I'm going to make both one and five Ooh. favorite fanfic because <laughs> um, I'm just super curious. Uh, two is our favorite, our favorite game, Who Goes Nazi? Three, Would You Rather? Four, pitch the bad gritty reboot. Five, again, favorite fanfic. And six, give yourself a Homeric epithet. You can give us one to each other. We can, you can share your favorites as well. But yeah. the point and essence of that game is to give yourself one as well. Uh, Danielle, since this is your first time on the pod, uh, you can roll. Okay. You got one oh, yes. favorite yes. fanfic. I'm actually really excited about this one. So... I am really surprised by how much Odyssey fanfic I have Are stumbled you? across. Are you, though? Yeah, to a certain extent, because <laughs> uh, I was expecting to be overwhelmed with a bunch of, you know, like Doctor Who or Sherlock or Game of Thrones, whatever, have, you know, whatever is more in pop culture currently. But I actually found a fanfic called the Ikea Sea. What? Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. Yes, yes, yes. This is already genius and yes. I love it. And this is why I was like, oh my God, I love this. So it's basically an interpretation of the Odyssey that takes place in Ikea. <laughs> and Odysseus has to navigate Ikea to return home. Uh, so here's an example. Lotus eaters are the meatball eaters. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and Cersei, when he encounters Cersei... Um, <laughs> <laughs> when he encounters Cersei, uh, his his crew are not turned into pigs. They are turned into stuffed animals. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Wait, but does he, like, bang an Ikea employee for seven <laughs> hours? <laughs> like, like, I feel like that's really kind of glossed over. Okay. Uh, I guess and, Ikea and, would also be a great place to build yourself a raft. <laughs> but, I mean, there's there's moments where it's like he seems like he's at the exit, but next thing you know, there's a crush of people, and, and he is thrown back into the hellhole that can be ikea i guess um but it basically ends with uh uh pretty much uh, on the level of athena placing actual clear directions to the exit and i just thought that is fairly genius that's a really good that's whoever you are that wrote this like props to you yes i love that how creative i can't was. believe this wasn't an episode i know 30 rock had its own ikea episode but this <laughs> seems like it would have been a 30 rock episode yeah. um all right i always go last so i'm actually gonna go second this time and i'll let ben go last oh. finally for once all right what am i gonna get I got one as well, so I'm his favorite fanfic. Um, but I will actually, because I did want to talk about this, and now I can shoehorn it in. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I recently read Madeline Miller's novel, mm -hmm. Circe, which I do think is fanfic. And this is just like to say, fanfic is great. And if you want to write it, write it. And a lot of people get book deals. Um, and I think writing fanfic about a 3,000-year-old poem is awesome um but she wrote this novel called Circe and it is the story of the witch goddess Circe's life she makes a lot of choices that I don't necessarily agree with but in light of us talking about women's role in roles in this story it really does focus on the women in Odysseus's life including Penelope who makes a cameo at the end and Athena who comes off as a huge dick in this version of the novel um like many translations of the Odyssey. It it also attempts to be pretty poetic in terms of a novel, but it's it's very accessible and intertextual. Uh, so 
this is just my plug for saying that if you if you were on a right fanfic, you might get a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe neither of you said the most famous Odyssey fanfic, which is The Aeneid by Virgil, <laughs> <laughs> which is just Aeneas one-upping Odysseus the entire time oh, until yes, he found Rome. Yes. Oh, that's so good and so true. All right, Ben, I'm going to roll for you and hopefully you Wait, will not... did you... Oh, you went... You, you weren't going to roll again? No, I just did my fanfic one. Now it's <laughs> all your right, turn. All right. Now it's your turn. You got two, two. who yeah. goes Nazi. Uh, definitely Agamemnon. <laughs> he he's like already MRA. <laughs> um, you know, he's been red-pilled by his murderous wife. Um, uh... Who else would go Nazi? I don't know. This is I this is a hard book for me. I think, you know, all the suitors seem to be very, you know, collaborative in like in that sense where they're all just sort of, well, this is what we gotta do. Like <laughs> Penelope doesn't have a husband. Um I you know, I don't think Odysseus would. I think Odysseus is too narcissistic to fall in and follow orders. Um and he would also want to just like screw up and like play tricks and then brag about them. And I feel like Hitler would hate Odysseus actually. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't, all these men are dumb and bad in this book, but not Nazi-esque. Except for all the, you know, really um, angry heroes from the Iliad. This is a harder one to mm-hmm. do, I think, because this, the values are so different and almost right. alien to us like now. The, the, the values of the odyssey are welcoming foreigners and strangers and being open where that is, you know, that's the exact opposite of, um, you know, Nazis. So they do have slaves though. Props to the, props to the ancient Greek. They do have slaves. Certainly. Yeah. And, um, they're very elitist and there's a lot of, I mean, they're incestuous. So there's probably a lot of pure blood stuff. going on. <laughs> um, more yeah, likely to jump join Voldemort than Hitler though yeah yeah maybe that maybe that's true um you know I think I probably agree with you though Wilson does make a point in her intro about um the in the colonialism aspect is that non-Greek people uh are it's I mean it's not fine to stab them in the eye you get punished uh, but then in other translations a lot of times like when they meet the other cannibals she chooses the words giants um, and other mm-hmm. translators have had used savages, which is a very loaded term. Um, so maybe I would, if I was playing this game, I would say previous translators of this were more likely to be Nazis than <laughs> that is very, Yeah, that's, very that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was ridiculous. Um, I still think the Ikea Sea is the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of. Um, that was the first half of the Odyssey. We're going to read the second half uh, in two weeks. Well, we'll real read it but over that time, but we will... Uh, talk about it in two weeks and we'll talk about language I'm we so will excited what's gonna happen <laughs> <I know. laughs> is it gonna get home yeah uh we'll talk about language we'll talk about characters um we'll talk about uh good essays you could possibly write about the odyssey because <laughs> you're probably reading it from multiple classes um and that'll be that and then uh after that our next book will be ulysses um so yeah. we'll have some background also fanfic you know? <laughs> ulysses, yes, also fanfic really. yeah so it'll be there's a lot of odyssey going on um, oh, we should definitely talk about like favorite adaptations. Yeah, we'll talk about adaptations. Yeah. Arthur, The Simpsons, yeah. Brother Where Art Thou, uh, you know, Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it'll all be great. It'll all be really fun. Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Ben? 
My pleasure as always. (laughs) I'm so glad. Uh, Thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you want to talk to us for any reason about any books, you can follow us on Twitter at CannonballsPod. That's C-A-N-O-N, balls with a Z pod. Same thing on Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. And uh, we'll see you next week.